Uh, thanks very much, Tilly. And it's yeah, it's great to see everyone here. Um, thanks so much for the welcome, Auntie Rhonda. I mean, Gadigal people took the brunt of the invasion of British imperialism, imperialism on these lands and have never stopped resisting. And it's just, a, I think it's a real testament, particularly we take an enormous amount of inspiration from Auntie Rhonda's family, her father, Chicka Dixon, um, a wharfie, you know, who led a lot of the struggles through the Black Power movement. And our organisation is really about trying to build the power of the working class and link those struggles up with struggles of oppressed people, and particularly on these stolen lands, trying to build workers' power behind the struggles for Aboriginal justice and Aboriginal sovereignty. It's something we're committed to and something we'll try to do uh, day to day. So with my talk, I'm just going to give a bit of an overview of some of the history of the Voice to Parliament proposal. I think the current round of discussion and debate that we've got about constitutional recognition, the cycle for this really started in 2007, just after they launched the Northern Territory intervention. Now, there is some history of um, uh, discussion and even demands uh, coming from Aboriginal people for constitutional recognition, but I don't think it would be right to say that it is a demand that's come from the street. This isn't something that you know people in the 1970s were chanting, what do we want? Constitutional recognition. I've certainly never been to a protest demonstration for constitutional recognition. The first mention, serious mention I can find um, in the history books about serious discussion about constitutional recognition for Aboriginal people came after the native title decision. And the the disgraceful Native Title Act that the Keating government put in place to make sure that it meant the vast majority of Aboriginal people would have no control over their land, right? They set up a situation where they said, we're going to foreclose the possibility of you actually having any serious land rights through this, and so we're going to initiate a process called a social justice package, where we look at providing social services, look at other broader reforms to deal with the fact of Aboriginal dispossession. And out of that, ATSIC at the time, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, did a report where they started to discuss that there could be constitutional change, um, which provided some protections for Indigenous people. So potentially protection from discrimination could go in the Constitution, or some recognition of the right of Aboriginal people to, to self-determination or sovereignty. So there was some discussion from ATSIC in the 90s. There was also some discussion from the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation when they brought down a report in the year 2000, where again, they talked about potentially putting some substantive rights in the Constitution. Again, a protection from discrimination was something that was that was raised but that's not what's on the table today. We are not at the moment discussing putting a clause in the Constitution which would give any rights to Aboriginal people whatsoever. In fact, this proposal has been designed very specifically, and so Aboriginal people will not have any rights that they could litigate. It's been designed and so it can be non-justiciable. They cannot go to the High Court to say the voice to Parliament's not being listened to, or the voice to Parliament hasn't been properly constituted through elections of our people, or whatever it might be. The proposal has been designed very specifically to keep it out of the High Court and make it and so it's something that gives people no substantive rights. And I'll go on um, to discuss that. So as I said, this, uh, this cycle of, of reform around constitutional recognition began with John Howard. He just launched the disgusting Northern Territory intervention, setting black politics back 50 years, reintroducing the protection board in the Northern Territory, taking away people's land, their jobs, smashing their communities. What you see now in Alice Springs, the crisis, that is the fruits of the 
the intervention. Those are the children who've grown up under the intervention. That is the result of smashing communities as they've done with the intervention for all those years. But in October, after Howard launched the intervention in June, in October of 2007, he said, I've had a road to Damascus moment. I've realised I haven't treated Aboriginal people properly. Noel Pearson now has this Aboriginal responsibility agenda that I can get behind. So I think it is important to recognise Aboriginal people. How about we put them in the preamble? And then Howard went down in the 2007 election. We had the election of the Rudd government. Rudd came in saying he would keep constitutional recognition alive. And he constituted and funded what was called an expert panel to go out and look at the question, do some consultation with communities and, 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 and come back with some proposals. Again, their proposals actually were for altering the race power, getting rid of the race power as it currently exists, and putting in a guarantee against discrimination in the Constitution, some sort of non-discrimination um, non clause. But the main thing that everyone remembers about that expert panel and their report was about the proposal to recognise Aboriginal people in the Constitution, have something in the preamble or have some symbolic form of recognition. And certainly the proposals against racial discrimination were not taken up. They were rejected clearly by the Liberal Party. We will not be coming near the idea of racial discrimination discrimination clause in the Constitution. Labor Party was lukewarm on it. They certainly didn't commit to going to a referendum on it. And the Referendum Council said, we can't do anything that doesn't have the support of both major parties, or the expert panel it was at the time. Sorry, I'm confusing my committees. I'll get to the, um, I'll get to the uh, Referendum Council. So, you know, at that time, what you had was a government-funded campaign. People may remember it, the R on the T-shirt going around, recognise a big campaign running exactly parallel with the Northern Territory intervention. So over here you had the government saying, we're doing great things for Aboriginal people, we want to recognise them in the constitution, on the ground, smash, 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 we're taking away your rights and we're driving you into the dirt. And Aboriginal communities across Australia rebelled against the recognised campaign. I went to protest against the recognised campaign, held the megaphone for people screaming and shouting you know, in front of meetings that they were excluded from for the recognised campaign. And by the time of the Abbott government coming around in 2015, they knew they had a problem. Both the Aboriginal leaders, the same people we see now in the Voice campaign, you know, Megan Davis, Marcia Langton, Noel Pearson, they're all on this expert panel. This was the way we were going to get change. We give up on that and let's start a new process that they started with dialogues that were run by what was called the, um, uh, the council, uh, the referendum council, Ian's going to talk a little bit to the process of the dialogue. So I won't go into the process of the dialogues. It, it, it is to be said that it is contested, the idea that the dialogues were, you know, the representative quality of the dialogues. But I think what you can say is there were a lot of Aboriginal people in those rooms who did reject the idea of token recognition, right? So people said, we don't want token recognition. We want some substantive rights. We want a treaty. We want our sovereignty recognised. We want protections in the constitution for our self-determination. And it's very interesting, actually. This process culminated in the Uluru Statement, which calls for voice, truth and treaty. But if you read the submission that was actually made by the Statement from the Heart Working Group that was elected from the Uluru Convention, right, and, when, and, and they made a submission to a parliamentary process that began afterwards, and they said that the Convention and the Dialogues actually rejected the idea of an advisory voice. They said, we can't just have another advisory body. We've had so many advisory bodies. We want power. We want something that's actually going to give us some guarantees of our rights. So it's very contested, the idea that the current proposal for a voice to parliament that's purely advisory and has no power is somehow um, some kind of consensus that came from the Uluru 
through process. And Ian might talk to that a bit more. But there were the more militant mob that we stand with on the streets every day with our rallies walked out of the Uluru Convention, right? Because they said, this is all designed to build support for Noel Pearson's voice to parliament proposal. We're not going to have a bar of it. We're walking out. They've got a predetermined outcome, you know, and that was, that was what was said at the time. And just with the little bit of time um, that I do have left, I will go into the question actually of the voice proposal and where it comes from because it comes out of Noel Pearson's Cape York Institute. You've got to go away and actually read the history of this proposal and where it comes from. What they knew was, and this is what they said explicitly, Shireen Morris was a human rights lawyer who, who went to work for Noel Pearson. They brought into their working group a bloke called Damien Freeman, right, who is a hardcore conservative philosopher, who's known as the court philosopher for John Howard, a good mate of Tony Abbott's, right? Actually, Shireen Morris in her book, um, uh, Radical Heart, she says that the genesis of the idea for the voice to parliament was a phone call between her and Damien Freeman, where she was saying, you constitutional conservatives won't accept anything in the constitution which allows us to, Aboriginal people to go to the High Court. You won't accept a de facto Bill of Rights. But their community won't accept anything that's token. So what are we going to do? How do we get around this? And he said, maybe we could come up with a body that's in the constitution but you can't litigate around it. It doesn't actually have any powers. It doesn't have any rights, right? This was the genesis of it. It starts to be developed by Noel Pearson within the Cape York Institute. They're trying to balance two sides that you actually can't reconcile, right? They campaign to the Liberal Party. They campaign to the mining industry. They say, support this because, read the clause they've got proposed, the government will set it up. The government will be able to get rid of it if they want to. It won't have any power. It will be non-justiciable. Don't worry, BHP, you can support this. Just like native title, it'll give us no actual power. And BHP's like, oh yeah, like this is actually quite useful. We can put some Aboriginal dot-dot paintings on our prospectus and then we can smash people on the ground. Yeah, we can support that. It gives you no rights, no worries. And you had the Minerals Council, the Business Council of Australia coming out in support of Noel Pearson's voice to parliament. Now, it's a little bit contradictory, and this is the thing I'll finish on, because there's also been a story for the left, which maybe some of these people have heard, in this room have heard at the public meetings. They'll never be able to get rid of it like they got rid of ATSIC because it's in the constitution. They'll have to listen to us. They'll be compelled to listen to us because it's in the constitution, right? That's how it's been sold to the left. Now, some of the more savvy people, left-wing people in the Yes campaign, they've been saying that the momentum that's generated out of the referendum will mean the government won't be able to get rid of it, right? But that's a different thing from saying it has a legal protection because it's in the Constitution. And I'll tell you right now, it does not. You go and read the constitutional experts, the submissions that have been written, they are clear as day. If you want to sack it like you sacked, that's it, you can. You can sack it and then tomorrow you can say the new voice to parliament is going to be 12 hand-picked people and that'll satisfy the constitution. They might not even constitute the voice to parliament. What are you going to do? You can't go to the High Court. You've just promised BHP it's non-justiciable and it won't actually give you any power. right? So that has been the fudge at the heart of this all the way along and it's starting to unravel now because there's public debate and there's spotlight on it and you're hearing more and more Aboriginal people say, we don't get any power out of this. Why would we go to this thing that gives this big celebration to the nation that we're all now going to embrace our culture and we actually get no substantive rights? So that's the bind we're in and I think it's very good people are here to come and discuss it. I mean, because, I mean, personally, I've said to other comrades, I personally can't see the point of a big, like, no campaign, like, let's vote no and defeat this because... 
I don't think that particularly takes us anywhere. But I also think we've got to puncture, like hell, the idea that the Albanese government, by signing up to the voice of the parliament, is doing anything about advancing Aboriginal people. They're backing Santos and Dom Perita, who also backs the voice, backing Santos to smash Aboriginal land in the Pilaga. They've launched Intervention Mark II. Now they're going to have more racist grog bans in Alice Springs. They haven't got rid of the income management system. They've done nothing about the thousands of jobs they took away. They've done nothing about the housing crisis. Oh, but the voice to parliament, this great thing, it's going to be a unifying moment. I think our job is to say, rubbish, act now. We want to see action now. We want to see action now on the injustices, restore the land, create the jobs, hand over the power and recognise you know, the power that Aboriginal people deserve. So I think that's our task going forward. Thanks. I'd like to acknowledge, you know, the Gadigal mob and thank Aunt as well for welcoming us here and, um, you know, creating a setting for the conversation, I guess, that we're about to have. A little bit about what I'm going to speak about today is actually these regional dialogues, right? In the lead up to the constitution and as well as the Aboriginal academics and those who are a part of the Yes campaign are really pushing that this is coming from the grassroots. It's written everywhere, in every kind of media communication that's coming out of this group. It's written that it's a grassroots movement. Let's, let's play with that idea, right? How many of you would consider Sydney grassroots? How many of you would consider Brisbane grassroots? I'm not saying that there's not grassroots mobs in these cities, but how many of you would consider these locations as grassroots locations? Now, part of these dialogues that happen across 12 locations, I'll just scroll down here, the 12 locations where these dialogues actually occurred were Hobart, Broome, Dubbo, Darwin, Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, Cairns, Ross River, Adelaide, Brisbane, and they also, Thursday Island, as well as they consulted the Ngunnawal Elders Council down in, Sydney, in Canberra. How many of those locations would you consider speaking to the grassroots communities? I would consider maybe one, Dubbo. I'd look at the I'd look at the townships that are based in Western Australia. I'd look at Broome. I'd look at Darwin as well as being representative of a high population of First Nation people. But if we're talking about the actual makeups of those who attended these regional dialogues, it was approximately 100 people. There's no actual numbers provided in any communication around the exact numbers that attended each forum. That's an issue for me. The fact that they were hosting the one in New South Wales in Sydney made it very hard for regional mobs to even access the dialogues. I know for a fact my community of Moree wasn't represented at these, at these regional dialogues. I wouldn't consider Sydney regional for that matter. Now if we go back and we actually look at <clears throat> a little bit of the makeup itself of who was actually involved in the referendum council in the lead up, who actually pushed these regional dialogues and was um, you know, I guess facilitating it as well. We had Pat Anderson, who was a co-chair, First Nations woman. We had Mark Liebler, who was a senior partner at Arnold Botch Lieber and Head Firm Taxation Practice, a non-Indigenous man. We have Professor Megan Davis, who we know is a First Nations woman. We've got Andrew Dimitrios, who was the Chief Executive Officer for the Australian Football League. We had Natasha, Desposte, and apologise for my pronunciations here, 
but she's also an Australian ambassador for women and, and girls. We have Murray Gleeson, former Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. We have a, uh, Tanya Hosh, who is a Torres Strait Islander woman. Christina Keneally, we all know who that is. We've got Jane McAloon, um, a strategic and corporate advisor. We have Noel Pearson. We have Michael Rose, a lawyer and former chief executive partner of Allen's. We have Amanda Vanstone, former senator for South Australia. We have Delasa Yorkston, a Torres Strait Islander woman. We also have an elder from the, and I don't want to do any injustice to pronouncing her name wrong, but she's from the Janata clan of the Yulong people. And then we also who have Denise Bowden, who was actually representative of that elder from that clan group. Now that's the makeup of this co-council, this referendum council, right? We look at the options that they actually took to the regional dialogue. The Council adopted the Experts Panel for, for four principles to guide this assessment for the proposal of constitutional reform, meaning that each proposal might contribute to a more unified and reconciled nation, to be a benefit to and accord to the wishes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, to be capable of being supported by an overwhelming majority of Australians from across the political and social spectrums, and be technical and legally sound. And that, just, that speaks exactly to the points that uh, Brother Paddy E was speaking to. You know, what, can, what win can they get within this space? And it was speaking to given no power to an instrument that we're literally going to ask the whole nation to, go, to vote on, that we're going to spend millions of dollars as a part of the campaign to uphold. We've got bipartisan support. We've got support from Big Business Australia, including mining corporations. I don't know about you, but me, anyone that signed up where they've got both political parties for it and Big Business Australia as well as mining corporations, I'm very fucking suspicious. <laughs> Sorry about that, I can use my language, very suspicious. So we look at the five proposals to reform, uh, to reform formed on the basis of the Council's work. Four of these proposals are based on the substantial overlap between the expert panel recommended model and the Joint Select Committee. These are a statement acknowledging Torres Strait Islander people as the first Australians which were placed in the Constitution or outside of it. These are exact words that are coming out of the Referendum Council's report on the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017. Exact words, all outside of it. Be, be of benefit to, and uh, sorry, uh, mending the existing race powers of Section 51 of the Constitution or deleting it and inserting a new power for the Constitution to make laws for Australian and Torres Strait Islander, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's also inserting a guarantee against the Racial Discrimination Act, which would be Section 116A, into the Constitution, and deleting Section 25, which contemplates the possibility of a state government excluding some Australians from voting on the basis of their race. In this, the Council also included a fifth, fifth option, providing for the first, first people's voice to be heard by Parliament and the right to be consulted on legislation and policy that relates to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Key words, consulted, no power, no actual genuine power. Now for me, if I'm going to go to the extent to actually amend the constitution, I would know for a fact that community and grassroots people would go to the extent to actually want to have an instrument like the UNDRIP implemented yeah. within our own domestic legislation to protect the rights of First Nation Indigenous people across this country. But they're falling well short of this. 
The committee noted that the proposal would benefit from wider community and uh, from wider community and debate, and suggested community consultation, particularly with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, in order to engage the community view on the establishment of such a body, and so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander may, if it has merit, and if they may wish to pursue it in the future, may wish. Right now, all I'm seeing out there in the community, all I'm seeing in comms and, and, and engagement around this particular conversation, are the same individuals pushing it. Now, we're talking about literally rely, as Professor Chelsea Watergate said, we're literally in this process relying on settler benevolence, something which has never been there when we're talking about engaging with the colonial state. There had been no goodwill or intention whenever they looked at how they treated First Nation people within this country. So it's a fallacy. It's a lie. What they're, what they're speaking to or what they're communicating to us is this great big mechanism of change, but it is going to feel well short of what our old people march for, of what we deserve in terms of our actual human rights on our own traditional homeland. And on top of that, they are going to select their own representative body to go up there. They're going to say it's going to be a democratic process, but as Paddy just alluded to and stated, that there is no genuine power to state or to challenge if the government comes in and removes those voices if they don't like what they're saying. There's no power of veto. We can, there's no mechanisms of challenge. Now, as I said, the dialogue across these 12 locations within this report actually said they've engaged with 1,200 First Nation people. Of those 1,200, 60% of the delegates that went to these dialogues were First Nation or traditional owner groups recognised through the native title system. We got 20% from community organisations, Aboriginal community controlled organisations, and then we got 20% involving key individuals. Now, I've scanned that document and I've scanned the internet. I cannot identify who these select individuals were who were invited to attend these dialogues. Because I know my leaders in my community wasn't. I know my Gomorrah elders weren't invited. And the fact that it was held in Sydney made it hard to even access it. We have seven nations that exist across our Gomorrah uh, nation. We didn't have representatives from those different clan groups to come down here and speak on what our issues was and what we deemed as worthy of pursuing in this political agenda. From those, from those representatives, there was 12 organisations that were selected to, to be engaged. That was the Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement, Central Land Council, Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporation, the Kimberley Land Council, New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, Northern Queensland Land Council, Northern Land Council, Southwest Aboriginal Land and Sea Council, Tasmanian Aboriginal Council, Torres Strait Size Council, Torres Strait Regional Authority, and the United Ngunnawal Elders Council. From that, they wanted to discuss the possibility of a statement of recognition. A statement of recognition or acknowledgement within the constitution was rejected by dialogue across every dialogue was rejected. This is what we're talking about right now. Recognition of First Nation people was utterly rejected. The concerns raised about the question was sovereignty. How exactly is this going to impact our sovereignty as First Nation people on our country? During the expert panel's consultation in 2011, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people also raised a concern about re recognition in the constitution and sovereignty. 
The final report of the Joint Select Parliamentary Committee found that almost every consultation Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander participants raised issues of sovereignty, contending that sovereignty was never ceded, relinquished or validly extinguished. Participants at some consultations were concerned that recognition would have implications for sovereignty. All dialogues asserted the fact that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people never ceded their sovereignty. For this re reason, delegates were not persuaded of the benefit of the acknowledgement in the constitution. Another concern raised was the content of any statement of acknowledgement. Dialogue spoke about the likelihood of government lawyers whittling it down and acknowledgement into a bland statement incompatible with truth telling. For this reason, a declaration outside of the constitution was endorsed by most dialogues because it was considered that such a declaration could be more fulsome account of the, of the history that actually happened there for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within Australia. The I think I'm going to bring it back now and actually quote a sister girl um, that's been very vocal as well as there's been a, a high number of Aboriginal women that have been vocal about this on social media. If you're not educated, go and listen to them. But I'm going to quote one one in particular that I thought was very interesting, especially given the most recent conversations about the power that this mechanism of the voice to parliament will have. It's, um, her name's Ancestress, if you want to go and follow her on Instagram. Um, she said, the question is not how will this affect our sovereignty, but, but is why are we expected to be accepting of something that undermines our sovereignty or our self-determination? We know we have sovereignty. It's not how it will affect it, but why are these leaders of the Yes campaign so willing to engage with a, with a government and a process that is going to undermine our sovereign and give us no legitimate power to make decisions about our own lives and the way that we determine our futures? How? Look at the likes of, of you know, I went to uni with Taylor Reid. Loved it. Loved it. Beautiful sister girl. Then the day they all speaking about the decision making powers that this will have. There's no power. We have no decision making. You know, the last referendum in relation to First Nation issues we had was they even recognise us as human beings. The next one that we're going to go to is to say that we recognise that you have a voice, but we're not going to listen. <laughs> Fuck out of here. Um, my name's Ethan, I'm a graduate student. Um, didn't prepare a organised speech because year 12's tough, but um, <laughs> got a few points and I guess I'm just going to speak about like um, the voice and what it means as a young person um, to my mob and like especially the social kind of uh, reasons to it um, and outlooks on the voice. Um, so yeah, do excuse me if I jump over a few topics and like, a few things, but I'm just going to be flipping through this journal. Um, yeah, so mentioned earlier, I'm a climate activist. I organize a school strike for climate. Um, and we know that climate justice and what climate justice is, is at its core, land rights, treaty, and First Nations-led solutions. Um, and then when we think about what the voice is and who's back, back in the voice, it's Rio Tinto and BHB who go around and explode and profit off destroying First Nations land, which is pretty ironic to me, and I guess it's just one reason why 
the voice isn't going to be affected for mob. Um, yeah, I'm just going to jump through all my points. Um, so hope you can follow along. Um, I guess like for no perspective and as someone who's against the voice, um, there's this idea that um, the colony, I guess modern Australia puts that polarizes First Nations people. Um, when First Nations people aren't going to fit colonial standards like a yes or no, um, First Nations people have voices already um, and they have experiences and perspectives that aren't refined to a yes or no and that's why I think it's so problematic at the moment because a lot of white people and non-Indigenous forces are forcing First Nations people to either pick yes or no. Mm. Um, and there's also this idea that there's a lot of divisive, divisiveness, is that the word? Yeah. Um, within our communities. Um, but I guess that's just non-Indigenous people seeing that First Nations people, um, you know, have their own autonomy um, and representation isn't divisiveness. Um, yeah, I've got so many notes. Um, I guess as a young person as well, like if you think about the voice and what the voice is trying to get at, it's you know recognizing recognizing us in the constitution. Um, but at the same time that our government is pushing for a voice in parliament, we still have more children being stolen from their homes in the stolen generations yeah. under uh, Linda Burney when she was in power. Um, I don't know what role she was in, but um, you know we've had Gomorrah struggle at the moment. Labor's green lighting and not stopping the destruction and fracking on Gomorrah land, they're exploding it, but then turn around and say they care about First Nations people. Um, they've become very good at greenwashing and acting like they care about First Nations people, uh, but turn around and strip us from everything we have. Um, so as grassroots people, as grassroots activists who are fighting for land, which just seems so ironic that we're fighting for our own land, um, you know, Labour government and the forces against um, behind the voice are uh, proposing these things that you know are backed by the, f the you know the same powers that we're on the streets for. Um, like I said, Santos, Rio Tinto. Um, just going through my notes. Um, yeah, and I guess the the, the conversations I've been having is that we don't we've had a voice. We've always had a voice. Uh, we have sovereignty, um, and yeah, if the government actually delivered on basic concrete reforms that were proposed decades ago um, and didn't commit to racist police, um, carceral, si carceral systems, maybe a voice would be trusted um, and they wouldn't be accused of, not accused, but mm. exposed for not engaging in tokenism. Um, yeah, we've been fighting for 235 years since colonialism and there's been zero commitments to our sovereignty. Um, and what we actually are asking for. Um, scrolling through my notes again. Um, yeah, and as a young person, I guess we can't vote in a referendum. We're under 18. Well, I'm under 18 and 17. Um, and we know that a lot of First Nations people, most First Nations people, are young people under the age of 18. Um, so, who's the voice actually representing? Um, if it's the future of young people, why can't they have a say of their own affairs if they're underage? Um, so it goes to the thing about rate, lowering the vote, voting age. Um, yeah. Um, okay, next point. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's 
something I've noticed as well is that, especially working in a lot of spaces of activism and advocacy, non-Indigenous people love the idea of being allies and committing to First Nations people, but when it doesn't align with the mainstream, that allyship tends to fall apart. Um, and what that means, I guess, for me is that, you know, non-Indigenous people love to have like falsified feelings towards First Nations justice. Um, but accepting that the voice isn't effective and when grassroots people are saying, grassroots First Nations people are saying that the voice isn't what we want, um, it forces non-Indigenous people to come to terms with, you know, the racist systems that are building the voice. And I guess that's why it's so hard for a lot of people to accept and understand that the voice isn't what we want um, without then going to themselves and accepting that, if that makes any sense, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I guess also like something that we've been speaking about is like sovereignty and what the voice actually means for people. And, you know, if we've been calling out on the streets and calling for just basic rights, um, because that's what we've been calling for. We haven't been calling for indigenous rights, we're just pleading for basic human rights. Um, you know, if we're calling for Santos to go to Gomorrah country and get the powers out of Gomorrah and stop exploiting, if we're asking for uh, coronal investigations, if we're asking for stopping the forced removal of kids, why hasn't that been done? And why are we pushing a voice when these issues are still going? I think it's, an, they've done an amazing job at saying they care about First Nations people, but actually not fixing the issues at hand. Um, it's been a lot of, like, you know, comms, like you said, little dot paintings everywhere, like a very tokenistic, um, you know, front that everyone's been putting on when there's still, you know, kids being locked up at alarming rates, there's still black boys being killed in the streets. Um, I don't know if you've seen that video, but those racists talking about lynching Aboriginal children, like this is all still going on, but we want a voice. It's just, you know, you think any sane person would want to stop, you know, young people from being killed on the streets because of their, you know, Aboriginality or stop incarcerating young people, um, actually fix that and be proud of that, not be proud and represent something that isn't actually effective or chosen by us. Um, and yeah, I also read down that like, they've been funneling millions of dollars, a lot of funding into, you know, uh, police systems we've seen in the Northern Territory, all these really racist, um, what well, it's called racist and um, exploitatory, I don't know if that's a word. Um, projects like Santos, all this money that's going in, but it's actually not going into First Nations um, groups at the moment. And we've seen that like, a voice isn't actually gonna do anything. It hasn't done anything for us. We had the recognized campaign when that actually didn't do anything for us. It's been First Nations led groups, uh, First, Na First Nations led, you know, leaders and organizations that have been on the ground supporting First Nations people. Um, because First Nations people want First Nations led um, support. We don't want whitewashed and not grassroots um, bodies representing us. Um, so yeah, I think if we really want to see what, you know, representation and, you know, like, not sovereignty, but, you know, basic, just basic representation and rights for First Nations people, it should be answering the issues at, issues at hand, not going on to another year campaign of, you know, this and that and filled with political inaccessible messages and ideas that aren't actually helping First Nations people at the hand. Um, and yeah, I think that's a lot of what I've written, but... Um,
That's like a million points. Say exactly what you want to say, bro. Speak some art. Go for it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, forget my whole. I know. Um, you know, at school strike, our new strike in March, our fifth demand is to resource First Nations of solutions that guarantee land rights um, and First Nations of solutions in the climate movement and broader Australian, um, you know, led powers. And I think it's really important that, you know, we're not proposing or putting forward things that aren't involving First Nations grassroots people. We're involving and highlighting, you know, people like Ian um, and Annie Lizzie that are actually leading the fight for climate justice or First Nations justice. Um, so I'm sure you've seen the March 3 strike, but you know, there's a big focus on First Nations-led solutions, especially uh, with Gomorrah at the moment. Um, and with the Labour, not the Labour, the elections coming up, um, it's really important that, you know, First Nations people are at the top of the agenda, um, but not, you know, politicised First Nations people. Um, First Nations people that are chosen and represented by the same politicians that oppress us. Um, yeah, so I invite all you guys to come to that because, you know, climate justice is really, at, I think, the core of what we do as First Nations people. Um, it is about land rights, it is about sovereignty, um, and it's not about trying to fight for a voice that isn't actually going to represent us. Um, yeah. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the land we sit upon tonight, stand upon, meet upon, is that of the Gadigal people, always was, always will be that of the Gadigal people, giving much respect and thanks to the beautiful auntie for welcoming us, making proper protocol for this meeting, sets the ground for us as First Nations people, as visitors here, as me and my nephews here, we're visitors. And we know, you know, and that's a big thing for you mob to understand. You're not Australian, you're a visitor to sovereign lands. So make sure you take that message back first. That, you know, this Australian constitution is to be recognised. It's a load of BS. Like we've gone through, I don't really take notes, as anyone knows, but I did tonight to make sure I didn't miss anything. So yeah, bear with me this time. See, Ethan, following your tricks now, boy. Nah. But you know, like reality is, 1967, the majority of you like today were asked to, to vote for our rights. And yeah, we got the yes vote back then. But what did that yes vote do for us? Gave us the right to be listed as a human being. After what, 189 years of being listed as a savage, an animal, a tree? Like yeah, we all have totem heritage that goes back to being land and being animals but not the way the white fellas labelled us as. So what's this referendum and, and that referendum then? What did it give us? What did it really give us? It gave us a power to vote for who we wanted to oppress us. Is that a solution to black fellas' rights? There you go. <laughs> you exactly. I'm getting to that, Arnie. I'm getting to that too. Exactly. That's another thing I'm going to get out to, like as, as a young nephew here said, he has no power to vote. A lot of us mob don't vote. So why should the 97% again come back and have a say for us? Like, it makes absolutely no common sense. Why is this voice to parliament referendum not only given to us mob? It's black business. 
So why shouldn't it be just a black body that votes if we want it or not? Why should you still have a power to undermine our sovereignty and let this government think that pat you on the back, you're doing a good thing for mob? No, understand, I am my voice. And anyone who knows me knows I use my voice quite loudly and proudly. And there's no far out way in her earth I'd ever have a white man in a suit be my voice. And let's understand also the fact of we already have black, strong, deadly mob inside their white building. Anyone here who doesn't know Senator Lydia Thorpe? Thank you. She's already there. Is she listened to? No. So what the f <laughs> what the <laughs> what yeah exactly what the fuck you know what the fuck there's black women that come from grassroots movements doesn't just come from elected body hasn't been self-anointed or appointed or any other English word you need to use to say that I'm a good person she's come from the roots she's done her hard yards she shut down every time she opens her mouth in those chambers. So what the hell is this voice department going to be when there's already voices in there? Understand the way I see it. A voice of parliament is putting a band-aid on terminal cancer. That's my reality. Where's the terminal cancer? Are you going to give us a band-aid? How does that fix me? How does that help me? How does it help a struggle like young nephew is fighting for land that is being blown up? and destroyed as we speak right here today, as we breathe. Blown up beyond, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Beyond, ugh, now I'm like you. Yeah, that's it, thank you, that's a simple word. Beyond repair. Like, have, has anyone not noticed what climate change really is? As the nephew said, the real struggle to fight for land rights. We've gone through how many advisory bodies? We've gone through at sick, make you fucking sick. Sorry, but not sorry. Sorry, but not sorry. Native title. You may as well go and, you know, it's, it's bullshit. The, the recognised campaign. Who are you mob to recognise us? No personal, you know, offence here. Please, no one take any. I'm saying there's a wider spectrum of white Australia or not, you're not white, you fellas, thank God. But yeah, like white, white, I mean, racist white. But who is... Who are you to be able to tell us what our voice should be and let alone have that voice hold no absolute power? I may as well go and talk to the lamp <laughs> and ask it to turn it on and let's see if it does. That'd be a good experiment, wouldn't it? That's exactly what a voice of parliament means to me. And, and, and it's hard, and it's hard battle for you mob to understand, and I fully understand that and I fully respect that because I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. But guess what? You're in mine. I don't want to be in yours. So can you get the fuck out of mine? Can you leave black business alone? Can you make sure when this referendum comes up, maybe to say to them, we don't belong here. Black business belongs to black mob. No vote, no yes, no, like, no referendum, full stop. Make the government go, wow, what the hell? They're not even going to vote no either or yes. What do we do with the thousands and millions of you? How do they do that after the billions and billions of dollars they're going to spend on this bullshit? Imagine you all went out there and made sure your statement was to every single friend and body you knew that was over 18 and registered to be enrolled in electorate to vote and told them, vote no to the referendum. Not actually vote no to what they're saying as a voice. Don't even bring it to the fucking table. 
We own the house. You don't invite us to the table. This is our house. But it's like me coming to one of your mob's house. Am I going to come there and I own everything? And I get to tell you how to speak to me? I get to tell you how to live? Tell you how to raise your children? Tell you how to, you know, have your law? Your self-determination? Hell no. So make sure you really understand the power you're going to be given by this government. Because we have none. And I'm, you know, as much as I love talking, as anyone knows, but yeah, but I'm really getting, you know, I'm almost 45 years old. I've been doing this for too long. And to know that no change is coming. To know that my beautiful auntie sitting here was one of those savage animals and trees and everything that'd be labelled as back in 67. Uncle, you know what I mean? It's ridiculous. Until I was 16. There you go. And the referendum did what for you, Arnie? There. See the lived life experience. Learn from it. Learn that this is not your battle. So, you know, we've never ceded our sovereignty. We never fucking will. So why would you have the power to help undermine it? When you can sit here and listen to the beautiful voices of us and the many others, like Brother said, get on social media. Anyone that's grassroots is telling you more or less what we're saying, maybe in their own dialogue, in their own channels, but the same thing. You know, a voice to Parliament is a silencer on an M16 taking our lives. That's what you may as well say. It's may as well, you know, tape, put a tape over us. They're going to have their own little body. Anyone here been on an advisory board? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Did you get very far? And that's why I resigned. City's there city. you go. You know, anyone who's been on an advisory board. Do you have any power being no. an advisory board? No. So how do you think it makes us feel as traditional First Nations people to know that this is the whitewash they're going to try and feed you guys to say, oh, you know, these black fellas, they need a voice. Hey, you got none, eh, brother? You got none, eh? You got none. Well, I fucking have one. You can all hear it. To understand when they come for you, how about you come for us? And I don't mean come for us on their side. Come for us as our real voice, as what you've been told today, as what you go out and research in your communities, find your local grassroots mob, get in their ears, get their help, get their guidance, and tell Albanese, fuck off, you're not getting off easy. <laughs> more thing to say, I'm going to use a quote from one of my brother boys, anyone, oh, probably a lot of you mob don't know him, Rodney Mason, aka Felon. He used to be, he still is, street radical brother. He helped defend only Jenny Munro at the Redfern 10 Embassy. He's been around. He hasn't been in Sydney for a while, doing his own thing, being a family. But he used to always say, where is it now? Make sure I get it right. Yeah, right. You know, he's all worried about the Labour and the Liberals, right? Everyone's doing this. Well, guess what? When it comes to Labour and Liberal, they both fuck us. Fuck us over. The only thing is, label uses lube. <laughs> That's why they're a little bit easier to understand what we say. We don't want to be. We are not to be recognised. You are to be recognised by us. Understand the meaning of sovereignty. How that far out old witch that died, thank God she rots. Who was a sovereign. Sovereign of what? 
not of us, to understand their own narrative. Put it back on them, what they teach you in uni from they say you can speak their English. That sovereignty is a power. Here is power. Here is power. Here and here is power. So don't switch on to this voice and take away our power, I beg of you. I honestly beg of you. Because I don't want my children to be sitting here in 50 years like we're done from 67 and have the same battle and the same struggles knowing how many deaths in custody can you read on the papers, how many of our babies are being stolen right now, how much of our land are being desecrated, our waters are being poisoned. Do you want a country to live in? Do you want a land to love? We are the law. We always have been. And it's not about having a hierarchy over you. If you come and sit with us, you'll see how we speak. You'll see that you are welcome to a circle. There is no corners in our law, in our governance. There never has been, there never will be. There is no sides. There is no division from our elders to our babies. Everyone is included in our conversations, of our dialogues, of how we go forward. So how about you join our circle? How about I ask of you to be in our circle? Don't take this divide by the, by the government because I can guarantee you they're not for us. They never have been. This land is built on theft, rape, murder, and it still happens today, as you can see, situated in front of you. Nothing has really changed except for the fact that we're now only 3%. So it's time that the 97% stand with us properly. Take your privilege as a visitor to this country and use it with all the knowledge and integrity and respect that you have as a visitor here. And yeah, I'm going to get emotional, so I'll leave it there. Thank you very much.